Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. I guess you guys can't get rid of me yet because here we are. I'm back. Um, It is still Friday, December 15th. Maybe by the time you're hearing this, it's Saturday. But either way, hope hope your day is ending well. I, uh, I'm off Fridays, like I said, so did, uh, did about 14 laps around a one-mile lake <laughs> in Reno. Um, call me crazy. I don't know. Sometimes I just like to do those things where it's kind of a mental test of just seeing the same thing over and over again, and you kind of just get into a groove and shut it off. I actually had to make a tick mark on my notes in my phone after every lap just to remember which lap I was on because after a while, they all just kind of blend together. But anyways, I'm fired up on endorphins, and here we are. It is it is taco night, by the way, after this, so I'm excited for that. Going to make some habanero turkey tacos. Whew, getting excited. But anyways, first and foremost, some bad news to start off, because I never talk about bad news on this podcast. Psych. The IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, apparently have come out and said that they mistakenly shot and killed three hostages, that had been held by Hamas. And when I say hostages, I mean three Israeli hostages, right? So they killed three of their own. And this is this is just another iteration of reports we've seen where, I think it was two days ago, three days ago, I talked about how a, like a good amount of IDF deaths inside of Gaza have been through collateral damage or friendly fire. And to me, on a broad level, I think this shows just how bleak everything is on the ground how escalated everything is, how on edge both the IDF and Hamas fighters are, and just how dire the situation is. And we do need to find a way to wrap this up one way or another. Um, The Economist writes here in quotes, the IDF apologized for the tragic incident, which it said happened in northern Gaza. The article speculated in quotes that the hostages had escaped from or been abandoned by their captors. Later in the article, it talks about how earlier Israel did approve the temporary delivery of aid to Gaza through the Karim Shalom border crossing, which is located in the south. And Jake Sullivan, America's national security advisor, sorry, has said this is a significant step. So look, there's always a little good news allowing temporary aid into Gaza. But at the end of the day, I don't think temporary aid is going to fix the death and destruction we're seeing and yeah, it's just it's just not good news. There's really not much else I have to say on that, but I just wanted to report that. And of course, of course, this is not surprising when you look at the chaos we've seen in northern Gaza, the chaos that is now spreading to the south in places like Khan Yunis. And look, at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of anger at the IDF. I think rightfully so in a lot of cases. And there's a lot of anger at Hamas. In this case, I put the blame on Hamas here because these hostages wouldn't have been accidentally killed if Hamas hadn't taken them in the first place. So I don't want to hear the red conning that I see on Instagram and TikTok and all this stuff where people are, are starting to question, you know, even if Hamas did all this on October 7th. No, Hamas took a fucking shit ton of people and the IDF wants revenge and rightfully so wants answers. And it, it's, a, it's a shit show. And at the end of the day, I think we do have to put this on Hamas first and foremost. All right, moving on. I'm, I've been meaning to tread lightly on this, but I'm just going to go into it. It's been a topic I've been avoiding for the last week. So warning, <laughs> I'm going to piss off people no matter what I say, but we're going to talk about it anyways. And this is the whole Harvard, Penn, MIT scandal where the presidents were 
put in front of Congress, a congressional hearing, and asked if they condemn their students calling for... Sorry, Siri. (laughs) Um, They're asked if they are willing to condemn their students calling for the genocide of the Jewish people. And I'm sure most of you are, are aware of what happened. The the academics kind of circumnavigated the issue, I guess would be the best way to put it. And one of them, Liz McGill, did resign. But Claudia Gay so far has not of Harvard and... And also Sally Kornbluth of MIT has also not resigned. And, I mean, I haven't really wanted to mention this because I have some pretty absolutist views on free speech, meaning that I pretty much think that you have to allow free speech to occur, even if it makes you angry and sad and feel threatened, up to the point where at least there's no action or conduct following the free speech, right? And... This is why, for example, the ACLU supported neo-Nazis marching in Skokie, Illinois, literally a community made up of Holocaust survivors. Even though the ACLU obviously probably deep down hates Nazis, they said that we're not here to protect the free speech we agree with. The First Amendment is about protecting the speech we don't agree with. And that is that has always been my stance. I am pretty much a free speech absolutist. And this this case led by Elise Stefanik, this hearing. It's been all over the news. Um, It's made different groups of people angry for different reasons. And I wanted to talk about it because I'm pretty conflicted on it. I'll start by talking about why I'm conflicted on it, and then we'll get into more of the details of what has happened here. So basically, I'm conflicted because I just, in my own life, anecdotally, have seen smart people, people in my own life, friends, acquaintances, people with PhDs and grad, you know, master's degrees, just putting out statements that are are pretty insane, that are, you know, talking about how Hamas didn't kill all these kids on October 7th, and how it was actually an inside job, for example, or these are freedom fighters, and the Jews deserved it. And I've seen, you know, that one story where you had Jewish members of a university basically locking themselves in the library because there was a mob outside demanding demanding justice for what was going on in Gaza. And and I yeah, there's been some pretty atrocious stuff going on on college campuses and I would imagine that if you're like a college student that's Jewish that maybe holds progressive views, you feel kind of lost right now because right now the community that you're a part of is quite malicious and angry at the Jewish community. And that is not everywhere for sure because I think I think a lot of the, the protests we've seen have actually involved members of the Jewish community just protesting against the violence and just the humanitarian disaster that we're seeing in Gaza. And so it gets complicated because, of course, there are some radicals calling Hamas freedom fighters and the Israelis killed hipsters. Yeah, there's, there's horrible people, but I think the majority of people are angry and are calling on the Israeli government. And it, it gets really complicated because I, I think there's arguments to be made in both ways that maybe maybe the Israeli government, the Likud government, is committing some sort of genocide or at the or, or even at the most war crimes here, you know. And so it's it, it's really complex. And I've said for a long time, it is not anti-Semitism to criticize what Israel's doing, to protest against what Israel's doing, but I think it's it, it does become anti-Semitism when you start saying, well, Israel or the Jewish people in general should not exist or 
they don't deserve the rights or you defend Hamas for killing innocent Israelis. That's where I think it does cross the line. And so I think we've seen a little bit of both on college campuses going on here. And I mean, I'm going to play the Elise Stefanik or part of the hearing where she kind of corners these college uh, presidents into answering how they did. And, And my thing here is that this is kind of a political hit job, I would say, just off the bat. Elise Stefanik is honestly no perfect person, and she's even, she has allies that are anti-Semites, has touted the Great Replacement Theory, which is definitely linked with anti-Semitism, as well as xenophobia and racism, so she is no perfect ally either, and I think she wanted to corner these people, specifically getting them kind of between a rock and a hard place, because she has been a critic of elite universities for quite some time, even though, of course, I think she went to Harvard. <laughs> but, you know, all these all these anti-elite elites like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and her and Tom Cotton, they all went to these colleges, but now they hate them, of, of course. But that's besides the point. But it, it seems like these presidents, I think, could have just said, we do not support people calling for genocide but we support our students protesting, criticizing Israel, and exercising their First Amendment rights. What we don't support is them throwing bricks or breaking windows or physically threatening, threatening um, Jewish students. I think these presidents could have done a better job of that. But I'm going to play the clip now. And I think what you'll notice is that these are three academics that are probably too smart for their own good that are just answering the question how any professor that is probably too smart for their own good would. And I don't think these three are anti-Semites. I think they are intersectional educators who are maybe too far into the weeds and are just trying to answer this in an academic way. But because they're not direct, at least Stefanik is able to eat this up alive. And I want you to listen to the first one who talks, who is uh, Sally Kornbluth, of MIT. That's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She does bring up an interesting point about how it depends on the context, right? Like if if there's just students that are saying they hate Israel or they don't like the Jews, then technically they are protected by the First Amendment. She says that the context, though, say if they're trying to harm Jewish students, that's very different. And, and I think that that part of this is kind of being lost because of just how divided and angry and chaotic everything is right now in our politics. So I'll stop talking and play this clip and we'll We'll keep going after it. Uh, Madam Chair, I'd like to yield the balance of my time to the gentlewoman from New York. Dr. Kornbluth, at MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context, when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. So those would not be according to the MIT's code of conduct or rules? That would be um, investigated as harassment, if pervasive and severe. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking specifically calling for the genocide. By the way, I mean, I, I can't help but agree with that answer. 
there's one thing about saying something, we have a First Amendment. There's another thing about actually turning that into conduct. Elise Stefanik is doing a hit job here on three academics that are answering like academics. What do you expect these academics to speak like? I don't know. This is just, I think this is just a little bit absurd. Side of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. All right, so I guess we'll dive into this. So my initial take would be that I think what these three, Gay, Cornbleth, and McGill are saying is that, like, well, actually, here's what I would say. I personally do not support students calling for the death of Jews. I think it's atrocious and anti-Semitism is horrible. On our campus, we have seen some bad activities and I condemn all of them. And if any students have threatened members of other communities, such as the Jewish community, we will pursue that and make sure that the student is held accountable and the right punishment is administered. But most of the students on our campuses are mainly putting out statements in support of ending the bombardment of Gaza in some form of a ceasefire, and our students are exercising their First Amendment rights in order to criticize the Israeli government. And as long as there are no attacks or physical actions taken or conduct that leads to violence, then that is within our students' First Amendment rights to do this. That's what I would say. But unfortunately, I, I can't, I mean, it's not lost on me that these three <clears throat> just say in context, when Stefanik is directly asking do you, are you okay with people calling for the genocide of the Jews? It, it's not a great look, no matter what you think of this, to just say, well, it depends on the context. I think, I think all three of these people could have done a better job at explaining that. And I have, I have no doubt that McGill, who did resign, Penn's president, I, I'm sure she wishes she could have gone back and explained that better. But I think it's good she resigned in a sense because you want to create a culture where you know when it's time to fall on the sword. You know when it's time to step away. And she did that. And I think, I think most organizations want a culture where the right thing to do when you know people are coming after you is to resign. And then if you do resign and <clears throat> people realize it was wrong, then they can call you back or people can be angry and beg you to come back. But resigning is better than doing what like a George Santos was trying to do or someone like that where you just stay embattled and try to outlive the conflict, whatever it may be. But... I do think that <clears throat> Elise Stefanik wanted a gotcha. It worked. But I just think the nuance is very lost here because I've been following this. I've talked a lot about my anger with intersectionality in terms of this conflict because intersectionality is all about looking at where power lies and defending the little guy and looking at how changing intersectional dynamics impact people from different racial sexual groups, right? And in this case, Hamas is the little guy compared to the Israeli government, right? I mean, Israel has money and support and better weapons and technology, but 
just because Hamas is the little guy doesn't mean it's the moral actor here. And sometimes I think intersectionality can get in the way of us having a nuanced conversation about that. And it's kind of backfired. And I do think college campuses have really adopted intersectional politics. And sometimes it's just not everything is meant to be intersectional or perfectly intersectional. And I think a lot of the people that have become very radicalized and are now completely saying Hamas is a political entity, not a terrorist group, it's because of this intersectional lens that is being taught on college campuses. And I think there is criticism to be had there. And I read a good piece from Ben Sass, of all people, you know, Nebraska senator. Now I think he's the president of the University of Florida, which is interesting. It's interesting because he was kind of an anti-Trumper. Not sure if he's a big DeSantis guy, but now he's in Florida, the president of one of the universities that, of course, DeSantis is always having some sort of conflict with. So that's, that's pretty fascinating to me. Now... I think Ben Sass, I don't agree with everything he says in here, but he does start with Orwell, a George Orwell quote that I think really does maybe sum up some of this pretty well. Orwell said, some ideas are so stupid that only intellectuals believe them. And I always think of what what kind of has happened to universities. And I, I probably agree with him. Like he gives an example of back when he was in Nebraska and he was talking to academics at the University of Nebraska and they were basically telling him that, like, the term Latinx was being briefly, you know, quickly adopted, and they were requiring it to be used in academia there. And Sass basically jokes that some of these professors that were white were worried that they were going to have to be telling Latinos or immigrants to start using Latinx. And that was where he comes up with, you know, some ideas are so stupid that only intellectuals believe them. Or he quotes George Orwell in that moment. And it, it does seem like colleges have changed. And I think part of the criticism that some on the right and on the left, I mean, the Atlantic's pretty for Harvard's president resigning, Claudia Gay, for example. And I've seen criticism on both sides. I mean, there's a bipartisan house call for for Claudia Gay from Harvard to resign. So like, this is definitely pretty bipartisan. And I, I think it's because we have seen a lack of free speech being allowed on college campuses or at least we've seen vitriolic opposition to free speech on college campuses when it comes to other issues, such as when you have like, and I don't like him, I think his his views are atrocious, but when you have like a Ben Shapiro go to like Bates College or go up to Middlebury or something and you just have people like, you, you, he pretty much has to hire security to get into the building and you have students just like ready to burn the place down. Like it doesn't seem like some of these campuses are like allowing conservative speech there, right? And I, I personally think that some of these issues are overblown. It's kind of a culture war scare on the right. But this idea of microaggressions and safe places and conflating rhetoric with violence and safety, you have faculty who want to hold their students' hands now. They don't want to challenge them with different perspectives. Administrators are policing language. I mean, part of the reason why education's got so expensive is because of all the bloat and just growth you see in administration, huge DEI statements and departments actually providing safe spaces instead of thought-provoking forums. I mean, all of this is true. And so I think that is where there's a bit of an anger on a lot of the right and some in the more moderate left about these, these presidents is that the one time that they're just openly saying free speech is fine, <laughs> it depends on the context, is, is in this context. And historically, I think there's a lot of worry about what happens when there's a double standard, especially involving the Jewish community, which has not obviously had a great history of being always welcomed by different communities. And so I can I, that is totally not lost on me. And I do think 
that we need to get back to universities where you're challenged, where there's a debate, where you don't have to agree with the professor. Maybe they piss you off. Maybe they worry you. Back in my undergraduate days at Chapman, I mean, we had classes. I mean, that was where John Eastman, one of the January 6th uh, legal coup designers, was teaching. You had him, and then you also had, like, far-left progressive, like, anthropology professors. And I was exposed to all that. I had, like, hardcore Trumpers as professors, and then I had Bernie supporting, like, democratic socialists. And, you know, I had, I, I just, I think you need that exposure. And I, I don't know if universities are doing that as much anymore. It does seem like they're becoming more of a place to just protect your own views. And I've, I, I've just seen that progress as I've gotten older. It does seem like it's happening. And I even experienced it more and more when I was in graduate school. And I think for students to really think independently and be pressured, there does need to be a feeling of maybe harm to your intellect, harm to your views, harm to your values. You need to be challenged. And I think that is why there's so much backlash for these college presidents is because they are now, oh, free speech is great. Depends on the context, but I guess only in this context. And again, I am trying to be fair here. I, al I also think that, again, Elise Stefanik has kind of been a crusader against elite institutions for quite some time. And I think she wanted this gotcha moment. Also, Claudine Gay, I, 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 again, at the end of the day, don't think what she was saying was wrong, and I don't think she should resign in some ways as well. Like, this is why I'm conflicted, because her neutrality on this is kind of what you want, and, and the other two, Cornbluth and McGill, is like, you do want them to be neutral on this as long as there's no harm, but they should be neutral on everything, ranging from Ben Shapiro coming to allowing a controversial professor stay as long as there's no harm like it needs to be across the board but her neutrality on this is worth defending i think it reflected free expression a modern interpretation of the first amendment and you know if i guess you could say if the context as she calls it of calling for genocide is a non-violent rally then I guess the university probably shouldn't stop it, right? Because as atrocious as it is, as disgusting as it is, it is nonviolent and it's speech and universities should allow that. I hate to say it. Please don't, don't despise me for saying that, but I think it's true. But then on the other hand, if the context is threatening Jewish students with force, pogrom type of activities, throwing bricks, running at groups of the Jewish community, the university should go after them completely. And I've said that fully. And also, I mean, we have to remember, and like college students, college is the time where some of the views you have are stupid and you change. Hell, in my undergraduate years, there was a year or so that I thought Reagan was the best president of all time. I have definitely changed from that. So people change, you know, and so I think... I think, it's, I think it's a really interesting conversation that no one's really having right now. It's just, oh, shame on these presidents, or these presidents are great and it's free speech. And I think we need to understand the nuance here, is that I do think there is a free speech issue on college campuses, and there is more just a coddling, coddling of the American mind, like, like Jonathan Haidt's great work a while back. And so 
I'm not trying to accomplish anything here other than just getting my thoughts out because I've been conflicted over the last week. I've had coworkers and some friends ask me, Alex, what do you think about that? And I, I tell them I don't totally know because then I watch like Fox News and now they're mad at Taylor Swift because she attended a a pro-Palestine rally that wasn't even really pro-Palestine. It was more of like help Palestine, get aid to Palestine. And now the Charlie Kirks of the world are not only calling her ugly, which is insane, by the way, but they're also now calling her a pro-Hamas representative or something. And I think we need to get this out of our culture that just be just because maybe you are calling on Israel to have a ceasefire or you are feeling atrocious about the plight of the Gazan children and just people, that doesn't make you anti-Semitic all the time. So we are in the we are in just a crazy time in this. And I think I think we need to use nuance and realize not everything in this is black and white. <sighs> but then of course <laughs> we live in the United States and probably with some of our most divisive times in more than half a century. So good luck with that, right? Anyways, before we are out of here, the last thing I want to talk about is Kevin McCarthy. It's probably not lost on you guys that I am not a Huge fan of my Kevin, as Trump calls him. He, uh, well, he's leaving Congress. He's actually not going to serve out the remainder of his term. He's leaving before the end of the year. And he delivered his final floor speech last night. And in it, he attacked Matt Gates, unloaded on MAGA Mike Johnson's um, legislative agenda or strategy, and said he loved every day he's been there. And he talked about how he loves public service, talked about maybe getting back into it to work in a second Trump administration. Of course he did. And look, the main reason I just, he annoys the junk out of me is because people like him and Elise Stefanik are like the definition of strivers. And when I talk about strivers, I mean people that just want to be in the mix. They want the power. They want to be in the room. They want, in Kevin McCarthy's case, the speaker gavel. They want to be there, and they're willing to keep going up the ladder, even if it means selling out everyone and every one of their own values along the way. And that is totally what McCarthy and Stefanik have done. So, of course, he's not going to serve out the remainder of his term. He's going to leave because he wanted to be Speaker. He did it, albeit not maybe how he wanted to, historically short-term, kind of a joke. Ugh, it's annoying. It's it, This guy really annoys me. And... <laughs> he he called it bittersweet, talked about how he, like I said, believes in public service, but then he just laid into Matt Gates, calling him psychotic, talking about how people should study that type of crazy mind, mainly the FBI should do it. Matt Gates said thoughts and prayers for the former congressman, which is a very fitting term for a Republican to say about practically anything, but it was kind of this weird, ugly, vitriolic end, even though McCarthy... If you look at him, he looked happy. But I kind of wonder what's going through his head. He also he also said he had criticism of Mike Johnson, but didn't actually name any of them. I don't know. I don't know. I, I didn't actually watch it. I just read through some articles and transcripts of what he said, because I don't have time. I don't have time to watch Kevin McCarthy. Um, the interesting thing, though, which, which is what I did just want to mention here, is that he is basically trying to put lipstick on a pig here. He is trying to sugarcoat his legacy as speaker. And he's saying, you know, he negotiated directly with Biden on the debt ceiling. He helped get, he was willing and helpful about getting Ukraine and border funding. He's pro-Israel. 
all of these are somewhat true, but it was Sarah Longwell in The Bulwark. I, I wrote this down when I was on my run because I thought it was worth mentioning. Sarah Longwell brings up a good point about how McCarthy is right now good at telling us about how he lost his job, you know, helping with Biden, trying to keep the government open, blah, blah, blah. But then Sarah Longwell says, says he doesn't really talk much about how he got his speaker job. And I think that is a very, very, very good point. This is the guy where after January 6th, it looks like the off-ramp was, was there. Republicans were going to move on from Trump. He goes down to Mar-a-Lago to, you know, make sure Trump's not on a hunger strike or whatever Liz Cheney's book talks about. But he was literally the permission structure to allow Trump back. And it's despicable. And then he kowtowed to Trump all the time. He, the, literally the reason why he lost his speakership is because he wanted it so bad that he was willing to make any concessions possible to get it. This is a guy who brown-nosed Trump in any way possible. And, and, and then at the end of the day, this is a guy who, after everything Trump's done and said, he's like, oh, yeah, I'd love to be in a second Trump administration. And, you know, you have Rich Lowry. He has a podcast. And he talks about how Democrats and never-Trumpers like me are overreacting about a Trump 2.0. He's like, don't worry. The military and our institutions have checks. Trump wouldn't be able to do all the things people are worried about. Kevin McCarthy has said similar things. See, there's a problem with that. Congress is the check. Congress is one of the checks. And a lot of Republican congressmen voted to decertify. They challenged Biden's victory. So the checks against authoritarianism almost collapsed because of people like Kevin McCarthy. And now they're saying, oh, it's an overreaction. Trump couldn't do any of this because there's checks. It's like, bro, the checks that you talk about, you are the check and you failed. And we were, we were pretty damn close. Our institutions held, but will they do it again when now Trump knows how to abuse these checks or circumvent them? Like, come on, man. God, I sound like Biden. Come on, man. But it's, but it's true. It's like there, there are supposed to be checks on the president, but all these striving Republicans and these, and these just individuals that want power or they actually believe in the cause, they're helping erode our checks. And so... Kevin McCarthy's been the face of that, the face of retconning history and defending Trump and keeping him as part of the Republican Party. And I would argue even if McCarthy helped keep the government open by working with Biden, which is good, he's also one of the guys who helped keep Trump around and is probably going to lead to more electoral defeats for Republicans, even if Trump wins the presidency, which I pray to God he doesn't. There's still going to be a lot of MAGA for a long time, and I think McCarthy's part of that. So anyways, let's get out of here. Enjoy your Friday night. Alex out. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios.